This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Now, Fight Back with Libby Snymer on Zoomer Radio. Good afternoon and welcome. It's Monday, time for our Zoomer Squad, and we have some major developments to dig into as we've been reported. Reporting, people over 80 were added to the province's top priority list, and in York, Peel, and Hamilton, not to mention Quebec, Alberta, and British Columbia, they are starting to have access to bookings and, in some cases, actual vaccinations as of today. But if you live in the community here in Toronto and you're not part of a pilot project, you are out of luck. In addition to healthcare workers, Toronto is prioritizing the homeless over older people. And as we know from the science, older people are most likely to die or be hospitalized because of COVID. And We're also going to drill down on some of the testimony that we have started to see from the Long-Term Care Commission, especially that of Long-Term Care Minister Marilee Fullerton. Let me give the numbers out. If you'd like to talk to us about your experience with trying to get a vaccination, 416-360-0740, toll-free, 1-866-866. 740-4740. And now let's go to our Zoomer squad, David Kravitz, Vice President of Zoomer Media and Chief Marketing Officer at CARP, Bill Van Gorder, Interim Chief Policy Officer at CARP, and Peter Mugridge, Senior Editor at Zoomer Magazine. Hi, everyone. Hi, Libby. Hey, Libby. Hi, Libby. Okay, let us begin with David. So uh, what do you make of the city of Toronto fast-tracking the homeless and uh, telling people over 80 to wait? I have no way of understanding this. Uh, It's one thing to say if we have a priority list of more than one category because we have enough vaccines, okay, but I have absolutely, I don't, I didn't, I knew the news, I saw the news, I didn't see what their rationale was. So you're asking people over the age of 80 to wait. We haven't even started on, on that group yet. And um, this is a complete mystery to me. Perhaps some of my, uh, my other uh, panelists or your guests would explain it, but it's on the face of it, it's uh, crazy. Uh, Bill? Well, it, it, David, David's right. It's really hard to believe. Right from the beginning, and and I hate to keep repeating this, but but the uh, the province said and the city of Toronto said they would follow the guidelines from the National uh, uh, Advisory Committee on Immunization, which clearly says that adults uh, over seventy years of of age should get it first. And the group that they're talking about adding now are in the second uh, stage. Uh, those uh, in living conditions that are at risk for infection. And and why they would do that, uh, uh, well, I, I, I did read what they said. They said that uh, many of these people were living in close quarters and they might be more likely to contract the disease. But what the NACI guidelines are based on, on who's liable to die from it. And younger people, even living in those conditions, are not as likely as the older uh, Torontonians who are waiting and were promised the vaccine first. So it's not why politically we would start changing what the best medical advice is, is is beyond comprehension. Well, that, you know, they are deflecting some of that to the province. And it is the province that put, for instance, healthcare workers above older people in the priority and and there are lots of people including healthcare workers who even take issue with that but but now and and the latest i heard and and fortunately finally after years of asking i am going to be talking to joe cressy who's the chair of the board of health and the counselor for the ward we are sitting in right now uh so he can explain it but even his early tweet was putting it on the province i don't think the province which released a whole list of people in phase 1 of priority i don't it didn't say put homeless people above older people peter it did not 
Yeah, and no. and uh, the the question too, Libby, is um, you know how how we're going to reach out to them because they're they're by nature very itinerant. You know, they move around. They have these camps. They uh, you know they they have no fixed address. They don't have health cards. Um, they're dealing with addiction issues. Uh, you know, they don't have cell phones or emails or, or anything. A lot of them and, do have cell phones. Yeah, and, but, and but very few. And I, I just don't understand how it's going to roll out to the home. I, I can see doing a side project, but, but you know, making them a priority is going to be very difficult to fulfill, I think. Well, they, they say they're going to do it with mobile clinics. You know, the mobile clinics that they couldn't take into long-term care? Right. <laughs> uh, and they have been taking mobile clinics. I mean, there have been about a, a couple of buildings, um, uh, I believe city-run uh, buildings for seniors that were part of a pilot project, which was like winning the lottery, and they also got vaccinated from mobile clinics. But you had to be part of that pilot project. Right, and it was stopped after we uh, we ran out of vaccines, right? Uh, I am not sure about that, but I, I think that uh, uh, the, the buildings that were in that pilot project got vaccinated, at least with the first shot. Yeah. So so, um, and and uh, it's fantastic. But I mean, I am getting all kinds of questions among them, you know, and with the prioritization of, of many kinds of healthcare workers, you know, people are saying, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm 85. Why is my 30 year old massage therapist getting vaccinated before me, David? There's no good answer. And um, it seems to me that it, it goes back to the fragmentation of decision-making, the different rules in different places, the different voices in the room at the table, who they listen to, who they don't listen to, political expediency all rolled into one, multiplied by, we don't have enough vaccines yet, we hope they're coming, we're told they're coming. Um, so you have, you know, a recipe for exactly the kind of chaos we're seeing. Uh I was about to take, uh, uh, let me take a call from Richard in North York. Hi, Richard. Hi, how are you? Thank uh, you for taking my call. You're welcome. Go ahead. Uh, I have difficulty understanding how the uh, homeless basically are taking priority. And I would add the comment that I agree that older people should be the priority, but there's another group of people that are totally forgotten, and those are disability people, people with pulmonary problems, uh, people who are actually got serious lung problems that are going to work, they're in the community, making a contribution, doing their best, and they're not even talked about. They, everybody talks about age, shelter people, and so on, but what about people with disabilities and pulmonary problems? Well, well, you know what you uh, you bring up uh, to me an, another point, and you know when uh, among the justifications for putting for putting uh, people in homeless shelters uh, above older people who are most likely to die by the science, uh, said, well, a lot of them have have uh, pre-existing medical conditions. Well, there are a lot of people in the community, as you point out, with pre-existing medical conditions, and they are not in the top priority. So uh, they're not even talked about. That's the concern. Well, uh, I mean, I've I've heard it mentioned, but they're not in the top priority. Richard, Correct. not in the top, not in the top priority uh, in Ontario at the moment. But on the recommendations from the National Committee, it said advanced age and other high risk conditions, and they were in the first group, and now they're being ignored by the rollout in Ontario. Well, um, exactly. I mean, uh, again, I will be talking to Joe Cressy. I know he has a particular interest and advocacy for homeless people. And, you know, I'm not trying to say that that's a bad thing. This is obviously a very disadvantaged and needy group. But again, you know, uh, the science says that people over 60 ha are most likely to have the worst cases and to die. And from that group, the vast majority are over 80. So why not get to them? <sighs> Anybody have anything to add on that note? Well, also, it's just not, it's not just the science, Libby, it's the actual statistics of the outcomes. You have 95, 96% of the actual deaths that have occurred are 65 plus, 60 plus. So it's not just 
modeling that says this is a high-risk group. It's the actual, I, I hate to say it, it's the actual death toll, the death count. Well, it's, the, it's exactly, it's the death count. And as I said, of the death count, most of those people are over 80. Yes. Okay. Um, sure. let Let us move along a bit because there is so much to dig into today. And David, uh, I know that you have spent the weekend reading 600 pages of testimony before the long-term care commission. So, um, uh, and especially uh, the testimony from our long-term care minister, Marilee Fullerton. If you listen to her, she did everything. She knew everything. Well, it's a, it's. I should tell your listeners that the Morocco Commission, they're not going to issue the report till April 30th, but they do post on their website the actual verbatim testimony given each day. And last week we had the big three. We had Dr. Williams, the Chief Medical Officer of Health Ontario. We had Christine Elliott, the Minister of Health, with her deputy. And finally, we had Marilee Fullerton, the Minister of Long-Term Care, with her deputy. And those testimonies are all... Um, Posted on the website. I also want to say that last week, Libby, we had a moment where we were speculating about this and wondering whether this was going to be a whitewash and they were going to treat them with kid gloves and so on. I have to say that the Commission Counsel, John Callahan, who's a, a practicing lawyer in Toronto, has been extremely uh, powerful in his questioning. He hasn't given them an inch. He has been respectful. He hasn't been argumentative, certainly or insulting, but he hasn't uh, allowed any wiggle room, and that's all he's been getting. It's quite depressing to read it all. I won't go through it all. Um, Williams, the chief medical officer of health, was shocked to learn, and I think we'll all be shocked to learn, that some of the nursing homes were receiving the eagerly awaited testing results by mail, they actually had to wait for the letters to arrive when they needed these results because they didn't have the technology to receive uh, uh, the uh, test results sooner. That was a shocker to me. I just, was shocked. Just a minute. Who who was sending them the results? The labs? Yes. They didn't have email to receive them? They uh, m- Many of them were receiving it by mail. Oh, by my God. Mail. Yes. Okay. Yeah. Uh, secondly, I was shocked that the, the Minister of Health, Christine Elliott, said that she really wasn't on top of the replenishment of PPE. Uh, The council, Callahan, referred to some cabinet documents from previous administrations, a really good one, warning of describing this exact pandemic, saying there's going to be a competition for scarce supplies of PPE. Uh, We're relying on Asian countries where we don't have any manufacturing. We've got to get this stuff now or we're going to be in big trouble. It was like three or four years ago. And uh, they were destroying the stuff they had, not improperly, because it was expired, it was out of date. But then they weren't getting, they weren't replenishing it, and she thought they were, but they really weren't because there was some new system of centralized purchasing, and she wasn't aware that it had held up the replenishment. Didn't know anything about it. Is that the provincial centralized system? Yes. That was that was an election issue for Doug Ford. Yeah. Well, they brought it in, and and Callahan asked, you know, you do a, what do we say to the families? Now, I'm sorry that your your uh, your loved ones died because of a policy review. He was very pointed, and then finally we got to to uh, Fullerton and and uh, Richard Steele, her deputy, and they taught they many 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 things. I'll just focus on one because that's one of the ones Carp has jumped on, which is the inspections. And they admitted that during the summer, um, they were looking at um, uh, this as more of a self-assessment and a period of reflection when the homes could reflect on what they had learned. They didn't really go into those homes aggressively, and uh, they were kind of leaving it up to each one to assess their readiness. That's number one. He, uh, The deputy conceded maybe we should have been more, you know, for. Um, he didn't use the word forceful, that's my word, but we should have been more aggressive. Just, but just a also, minute, David. This yeah, is sorry. the summer that we just had, the summer yes. after the yes. first wave. Getting ready for wave two. Oh my goodness. Then it emerged that uh, Callahan again, who was just wonderful here at the council, he said, well, you know, we've heard from a lot of other people like the hospitals that went into the homes, because many of the homes, the management was uh, taken over, in some cases in a partnership, not always in, a, in an emergency, but many of the hospitals that went in, they were shocked to find out how bad the IPAC, infection prevention and control was in these homes, just shocked. And they reflected 
that the inspectors didn't know what to look for. They really weren't properly trained to even observe what was going wrong. And uh, Fullerton and Steele sort of conceded that in a way, and we're looking at everything again. We've got to reevaluate how we're training these people. And so I think, I think, frankly, it shows that they were completely caught short by this crisis. It wasn't all their fault, but the system was so convoluted and so fragmented and so chopped up and nobody quite knowing who was in charge of what that it's it's mind-boggling when you read it you say what and these aren't stupid people they're articulate they're bright they're not they're not uh, i i don't have a low regard for them you know their qualifications but somehow the system made it impossible for them to to operate uh, correctly the idea that the inspectors don't even know they and they he admitted he said well we've got to do better training in ipac with our inspectors now let, let me ask <laughs> they, they're inspecting let let me ask a question here um Marilee fullerton said she was one of the first people to realize that there was a possibility of asymptomatic spread she was concerned about it i mean my and i have not read 600 pages yeah. was that she was uh, saying uh, i advocated I, I didn't win at the cabinet table and that's that but ev- but eventually they well but also williams the chief uh, public health officer he he wasn't a believer in there was a big debate do you test a asymptomatic or do you test just if you know that there's an infection and there was a lot of debate about that and uh, she didn't uh, win that um but that's another problem. There's all these different tables, they call them, the science table, the infection table, the management table. So, and you've got so many voices that there just didn't emerge any clear-cut understanding, especially after wave one. Her ministry was on a, it just looked like, you know, this is the way we do it. You know, I'm, I'm, this is... Th- it's very this, disturbing, uh, Libby. Yeah, this, uh, uh, Bill, I'm, I'm wondering if you can chime in. This is, this is what disturbed me since the summer, because in the first wave, Quebec uh, was appalling. It was even worse than Ontario. And they did things. They put in a massive hiring program. They paid people uh, to take the courses. They put infection officers in every facility. And... Uh, all the province would have had to do was, you know, look over uh, slightly to the east to Quebec and done what they were doing. And advocates like CARP were calling on them to do that. So um, what was the response to that in the testimony yeah. bill? And, and there and there uh, really was no, there was no response that talked about action. Now, all the answers that the minister gave were talking about things they might do. Uh, in the future, like like we need more community programs, uh, we need to help people stay in their homes longer. Things that that CARP has been talking about for years. The most damning part of it, really, to me, was uh, where uh, Fullerton was asked uh, or said, "You know, you're 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 a medical doctor. Couldn't you see these things coming?" And she said, "Well, I had to leave that up to the medical experts. Uh, no no leadership." Uh, no taking responsibility, a lot of talk about what the homes didn't do, what inspectors that didn't do, what should have been done differently, uh, but no, uh, no responsibility and no immediate action, no responses like we've looked at what's happening in the, in the other provinces and we're going to do uh, something about it. And even, even now, uh, we continue to hear that many of these uh, uh, problems are still in place, and nothing is being done about them. Peter? Yeah, um, uh, Richard Steele, the Deputy Minister, made an interesting comment. He, he, you know, after sort of deflecting responsibility for staffing and, you know, uh, trying to explain away the inspection issue, he said, um, we, we looked at all our measures after the first wave and said, what could we have done? And um, he didn't have an answer for that. Like, he, he just said, we tried everything. We tried to do this. We we did it a little bit differently than Quebec. We we took some ideas from Vancouver. But but he said, what could we have done? And, and I think it's that sort of inaction and inability to come up with a solution that, that's particularly damning. They, they just sort of, 
you know, we, we tried these things. The second wave hit us harder because it was more virulent. And what could we have done? And, 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 and that seems be, to be Steele's overriding message. Like, we, we did what, they w- what we tried to do, but, you know, it didn't work. And, yeah, he, and, but you he, can't he, fault us. Exactly right. that, that was his message, I thought. Yeah. Let me just read you this one quote from Steele. This will explain everything. Not explain. It'll put, he talked about, he says, that it was fundamentally wave two, going into wave two, quote, it was fundamentally constructed as a self-assessment exercise, working with the 24 LINs and working with, where possible, hospital partners as well. It was not intended. It should have been, but it was not intended as a kind of audit tool. It was intended as a kind of capacity-building, self-assessment preparedness tool. The results of these preparedness assessments, my understanding, they were certainly available locally in terms of who precisely got them in each area. That's a fair question. And, you know, maybe there should have been a more structured process around who was getting that information. I think we kind of left it to the regions to manage that, and maybe the ministry could have or should have provided more direction around sharing who precisely that information should have been shared with. What? And that's in the that's between way. So it's kind of, you know, you do your thing, and I don't really know who's getting the report. I'm not quite sure of this. I'm not quite sure of that. If we could your question on, on uh, the Fullerton's uh, reaction, she was asked about uh, Quebec and the fact that uh, Quebec put out a call for 10,000 uh, uh, new staff people. And she said, well, I don't think they got 10,000. I think they only probably got about half of that. Oh. Uh, but 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 they got <laughs> 5,000 and they got them and they did it. Wouldn't 5,000 have helped in Ontario? Uh, you ask a very good question, Bill. I'm going to take a, a call from Olive in Port Colburn. Hi, Olive. Oh, hi, Libby. Um there was a notice in our paper this morning. I live in the Niagara area. Yep. And it states that if you um, if you receive phone call from someone claiming to be from the mobile, from excuse me, from the public health department wanting to book a COVID nineteen vaccination appointment for you, don't believe them and don't give them your personal information. So I. I, I Niagara seems to be neglected here. I'm 90, and I have no idea if I'm going to get a phone call or how I'm okay, going to be contacted. Okay, here's so, the thinking. thing. I, I don't know exactly how you're being contacted. I think that the message is that nobody from public health contacting you legitimately will ask for personal information like a social insurance number or anything like that. Okay. Uh, so if somebody calls you and says, how would you like to come down tomorrow at 3 p.m.? Yes. I would say yes. But if they say, okay, Olive, I need your social insurance number. I need your credit card. I need anything like that. Hang up the phone. Okay, thank you very much. Could you repeat that message over the telephone or not? Uh, Scam. Scam. Okay, yes. Thanks, Olive, for your call. Thank you. Bye. Bye. So, yeah, that's uh, yet another thing to worry about. And and I heard that admonition from uh, public health in Hamilton. And in fact, in Hamilton, (laughs) in Hamilton, they're getting in touch with people over 80. To bring them in for vaccines. And in Toronto? Mm, no. And in Cornwall, in eastern Ontario, they are too. We heard that from the doctor that we were on. I was on with midweek last week, the yep. local medical officer of health. So they've got their, they've got it kind of wired there, and it's not here yet. I've, I've he- heard, you know, all kinds of, uh, you know, excuses slash explanations. Uh, one of them being, we have more healthcare workers here, so it's taking longer to vaccinate them. And uh, I, I mean, I and I'm still, you know, I, I'm let's say 98 percent that the province does not prioritize the priority lists. That is up to each public health unit. There's 34 of them. The province has clearly said it's up to the 34 of them to each do their own thing. And David, I would not be surprised if that ends up being the source of uh, bad things, shall we say. (laughs) 50 pages worth of Dr. Williams' testimony at the beginning, where the council tries to sort out the whole organization, well, you're the provincial medical officer of health. What authority do you have over the local 
uh, officers of health. It turns out not much, but maybe, but not really, but sort of, but kind of. You know, it, it, it's again, it's all over the map. They have a a very uh, inefficient superstructure that they all inherited before uh, the pandemic hit that they didn't necessarily build, not blaming them, but they never have been able to get their arms wrapped around it to work in a, in a integrated streamlined uh, way. That's, that's been the problem, frankly. Okay. We are uh, basically running out of time here. I'm going to give everybody 20 seconds, Bill. The anxiety that this is causing the uh, over uh, 80-year-old seniors who are waiting for their vaccination is inexcusable. And how could we treat our, our older members of society this way? Peter. Um, Alberta and Quebec have their online booking system for people 75 and over. It's up and running. Um, Alberta booked 120,000 appointments last week. Uh, Ontario has no bookings, and we won't have any for another few weeks. Well, no bookings in the central system. If you happen to live in a region that has its own methods of of booking, you may be uh, having better luck. Thank you so much to our Zoomer squad, Bill Van Gorder, Peter Mugridge, and David Kravitz. Thanks a lot. Thanks, Libby. Thanks, Libby. Okay. Thanks, Libby. We're taking a quick break. And when we come back, Joe Cressy, chair of the Toronto Board of Health. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Fight Back with Libby Schneimer on Zoomer Radio. As we have been discussing, if you are over the age of 80 in York or Peel Region or Hamilton, you can start booking and maybe even receiving your vaccine appointment as of today. In Toronto, unless you're part of a pilot project, well, you can't. Toronto is prioritizing vaccinating other priority groups now, including the homeless, even though the science shows older people are most likely to die of COVID. Joining me now, Joe Cressy, Toronto City Councillor for Ward 10, right here in our ward, Chair of the Toronto Board of Health. Welcome, Councillor Cressy. It's good to be here, Libby. Thank you for having me. Oh, well, thank you. And uh, as I've been saying, we have made dozens of requests to talk to you over a period of years. And uh, I hope this is the start of a better relationship because it's the first time. Well, delighted to be here. It's uh, always happy to chat. Okay. Well, so that's the question. Why are you prioritizing homeless people over older people in the community when the evidence is that older people are those most likely to die of COVID? Well, I guess I, w- I would start and start start by correcting you there, if it's okay. Sure. To say that it's actually not the city of Toronto, but the province that determines the order of priority for vaccinations. And so, very quickly, here's how roles and responsibilities around vaccines work. It's a relay race, effectively. It is the federal government that procures the supply of vaccinations. And then it is the local provincial governments that determine the order of priority, the all-important question of who's next in line and when do we get it. That's a decision by the province. And then at the municipal level, uh, the local public health unit and city, we work to help distribute those vaccines to get the needles in arms based on the provincial priority framework. Okay, my understanding and that of uh, a lot of people that I've been talking to, the province has a list of that contains quite a number of priority groups. Uh, my understanding and that of some people who are on the panels is that the province has not prioritized the priority groups. And uh, it, they have said very clearly that it is the local health units that will decide the rollout. And I'm even reading from the Globe and Mail, and tell me if the Globe and Mail is wrong, it says the city of Toronto issued the directive uh, that homeless people are to be fast-tracked. Is that, is that wrong? Was it the province that told you to fast-track the homeless over other groups in the priority list? So here's, how, here's the priority list from the province right now. Uh, as, as our listeners will well be aware, the, the province 
um, articulated that the first order of priority was residents of long-term care and retirement homes. Right. So in the city of Toronto are 87 long-term care homes. More than 10,000 residents have now all been offered their second dosages. After long-term care and retirement homes, the province uh, instructed all of the public health units to proceed to health care workers. These are priority health care workers working in hospitals, working in the frontline health care response, uh, and also uh, that local public health units uh, should look at other high at-risk congregate settings. Uh, of which that includes our shelter population. Uh, those over 80, thankfully, because my goodness, do we need to get vaccines into the arms of our seniors? We know that. Those over 80 have been identified as the immediate next in line, according to the province. And so what's happening right now is that every single public health unit in the province is being given uh, a per capita basage of vaccine supply to roll out. And it just so happens that about half of the healthcare workers in the entire province live in Toronto. And so you're starting to see a situation which can be confusing to many, but is actually simply under, simply clarified, which is you have an area like Guelph starting to vaccinate people over 80, whereas in Toronto, it's still healthcare workers. And okay, I'd, I'd, I'd like to, workers. let me jump in if I may. So sure. you said the province's priority was first long-term care mm-hmm. and then healthcare workers. But the fact is, the way it rolled out, Healthcare workers got vaccinated before long-term care, uh, and we saw that, and we got an apology for that, uh, and that's partly because of uh, the general's directive that it's uh, speed over perfection. Uh, but again, are you saying that the province is telling you to prioritize people in homeless shelters over people over 80 who are most likely to die? I'm, that's a yes or no question. Is it the province that said that, or is it the city that decided that it was more important to get to those, uh, you know, um, admittedly at-risk population before getting to people in the community? Uh, so the simple answer there, Libby, is that there is no directive throughout the entire province for when and how to prioritize shelter populations. There is discretion uh, to prioritize high-risk congregate living sites, because we know, not unlike long-term care, that they're very risky. But the bottom line here, Libby, is I don't, you know, we want to have vaccines to go in every single person's arm today. That would be ideal. I mean, that's what I would love to see. But we're going to be dealing with an issue here of, of supply. And so there is, it's important that we have uh, COVID vaccines being rolled out as quickly as possible to the most vulnerable right away. And I don't think anybody disputes that. We all want supply to come quickly, uh, and we all want that to happen yesterday. And so what the city, what we have done, uh, we have uh, nine mass immunization clinics that we've been told to have ready by April 1st. Well, we're ready to go now. Five of them are actually already they could be open tomorrow if vaccine supply came. Uh, we've partnered with our healthcare partners, the hospital sector and community clinics, uh, to prepare for their vaccination clinics, which again, the minute supply is here, we'll be ready to go. Um, listen, as, as that Toronto Public Health, as the chair of the board, I just want to get vaccines in people's arms as quickly as possible. I, I get that. Those but most at risk. I, I was, I'm glad you clarified that it was, again, because people are asking that it was your discretion that the people in the homeless shelters were going to get some of the limited supply of vaccines before the people over 80 in the community. Yeah, as per the provincial prioritization framework, those in high-risk congregate settings are part of that first key response. Uh, and so what we've seen uh, in, in the shelter population, and this is where we are truly all in this together, Libby, is that the shelter population, because these are often congregate sites, where as a result, the risk of outbreak is much higher. In fact, we've seen with these new transmissible variants, more than 49 cases in the shelter system just in the last two weeks. And so just like with long-term care and retirement homes, if we're going to stop transmission, those in really vulnerable settings need to be protected so that virus doesn't spread, so that it doesn't go into the community. I mean, the objective here is to save lives 
and prevent widespread. And so that's why retirement homes and long-term care homes were so critical as congregate sites. It's why high-risk shelters are so critical as a congregate site. Uh, but ultimately, we need vaccines for everybody. I mean, that's just the simple fact. Uh, ultimately, but p- again, people over 80 who are most at risk of death are waiting. And I'm curious about what you have to say to them as they watch their counterparts, you know, a few blocks away in York or Peel, getting vaccinated, or if they watch the people who are lucky enough to be part of those pilot projects get vaccinated. uh, And uh, they have to wait weeks because you're prioritizing and, and no, no, taking... Libby, I'm, I'm afraid you're not. You're not actually... What you're saying isn't actually accurate there. Is uh, for everybody, whether you're over 70, over 75, over 80, uh, this is simply a matter of vaccine supply and prioritization coming from the province. And so the city of Toronto, just like every other uh, city out there, we're waiting on vaccine supply to go, to pull the trigger. In fact, we've built our clinics. We've built a rollout model with our hospital partners. We're in discussions with our province and pharmacists and, and family physicians, all working together to be able to move quickly. Uh, and, and so I know you're trying to make this as if it's somehow uh, homeless people versus over 80. No, no. I mean, this is simply about getting vaccines out the door under the provincial well, framework and doing so as quickly as possible. There, and I uh, want vaccines in people's arms faster, as fast as everybody. Uh, but we're dependent on supply and we follow a provincial framework. And, and so to your comment that we're starting to see, and I'm glad in, in Guelph and other places, people overrating getting vaccines, that's great. But the reason that isn't happening here is because we have more healthcare workers who live in Toronto. And that's why following the provincial framework, they're still going through that list. Yeah. And and there are, frankly, I get calls from people who say, I'm 85 years old. Why is my 30-year-old massage therapist getting a a vaccine before I am? No. And this is, you know, I I want everybody to get vaccines right away. But at the city, we don't determine the order of priority. We don't determine whether it's healthcare workers or over 80-year-olds first or, or whether it's essential frontline workers or over 70-year-olds first, we follow the provincial framework. Our job is to get moving and get vaccines into people's arms. The province determines the order of priority and the feds provide the supply. And that's why this is a relay race. Uh, you know, in an ideal world, we just have vaccine everywhere. But there is a relay happening here and we need each level of government working really closely with each other because, Listen, if I'm a resident, I just want to know, when am I getting my vaccine and where do I go to sign up? That's what I want to know. And I want my governments working together to deliver that. Uh, And that's what our residents deserve. And that's what we're totally focused on at the city. That's uh, not exactly what they're getting. And by the way, as of last week, uh, doctors associations and pharmacists had received no word, nothing on what their role was expected to be. Head of the OMA? And pharmacists. Yeah, and and listen, you know, at the provincial level, uh, as we know, the provincial government, uh, as the overseer of healthcare, uh, oversees the relationship with with doctors, family physicians, and and pharmacies. But my focus here, Libby, to be straight, I'm not interested in pointing figures at other levels of government. I'm interested in working together. I think our residents have been through too much, and it's been too long, and we just want to make sure that our vaccines are coming and we're getting them in the arms. And so at the city, where our role isn't to prioritize, isn't to procure supply, it's to roll out needles into arms. That's our role. And and we're focused on doing that role the best we can and working as closely as possible with the other levels of government. I'm really not interested in pointing fingers at other levels of government right now. I just want to work together to solve uh, issues as they arise. Okay, well, uh, we'll see when we finally get to the arms of those over 80 in our community. Joe Cressy, thank you very much for joining us, and uh, I hope this is the first of many. All the best. Thank you. Okay, we are going to take a short break. And when we come back, uh, counterculture drugs that we remember from the 60s now showing great promise in treating depression and anxiety and PTSD when we return. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Fight Back with Libby Zneimer on Zoomer Radio. Welcome back. 
Zoomers remember psychedelic drugs and the backlash against them as part of the counterculture of the 60s. Well, now they are reemerging as a promising area of research and treatment for mental illnesses like anxiety, depression, and PTSD. And of course, we all know these mental illnesses are on the rise because of the pandemic. Let me give the numbers out again, 416-360-0740, toll-free 1-866-740-4740. And now I'm joined by Dr. Matthew Johnson, a professor of psychiatry and associate director at the Center for Psychedelic and Consciousness Research, and Mark Hayden, executive director at MAPS Canada and adjunct professor at the UBC School of Population and Public Health. Thank you so much both for being with us. It's a pleasure to be here. Let me. Great. Let's start with Dr. Johnson. Uh, I gather that it's been about 10 years since uh, scientists, the community, started looking at these drugs in a different way. It's actually been about uh, 20 years. So I've been, I've been doing uh, work with psychedelics for about uh, 17 years at Johns Hopkins. Um, but it, it seems like it, it's, this has been an exponentially growing area. So uh, uh, certainly 10 years ago, there was a, a bump in interest. And, and within the last two or three years, there's been a really great interest and in just sort of a, a, a massive expansion in terms of an increasing number of universities jumping into this research. And basically, what are you what are you finding uh, that how how can these drugs help in the treatment of mental illnesses? Yeah, so time and time again, we're seeing very large effects. So big reductions in depression, anxiety, PTSD, addiction um, at rate success rates much higher than you see with typical psychiatric drugs, and we're seeing that. Uh, not only for a number of dif- different disorders, but from a psychiatric treatment model that radically different differs from the norm. In other words, it only takes one, two, three administration of these compounds, and you see these behavioral uh, improvements six months, a year, or more later. It doesn't require taking the drug on a on a daily basis, like we all are familiar with with you know most medications, and psychiatric medications. So it's a radically different treatment model. Mark Hayden, I gather that your organization was one of the pioneers of this. Yeah, MAPS USA started working many years ago, probably closer to 30 years ago. Um, Their focus has been with post-traumatic stress disorder, PTSD, and looking at MDMA. But it's not just MDMA. It's not just a medication. Ecstasy, okay. I'm just going to... context. It's MDMA-assisted psychotherapy. So it's a therapeutic process that helps actually heal people's trauma in a way that no other traditional treatments have done. Uh, and Dr. Johnson, how does, th- how does that work? Uh, I, the, the patient will take the drug, but with a psychiatrist or a psychotherapist present, correct? Uh, so the, the credentials of the individuals in the room will, will vary by the study. While well, there's certainly a, always a, a physician on board um, since it is a medication administration. But, yeah, there's it, an important aspect is that the seeds are sown long before the drug administration. After the screening process, there is extensive rapport building. So therapeutic hours spent between the people who are going to serve as the guides or the whatever you want to call them, people with the with the patient during the experience. So there's this rapport building time before that. So they're, they're with someone they can trust and who are trained to respond appropriately. And at least with, with psilocybin, more so than with MDMA, psilocybin, the drug I've principally worked with, um, there is a, a, a substantial risk of a, of a strong anxiety reaction. It happens to about a third of people. Um, but that's well addressed, mitigated by strong personal reassurance. Um, and that's where the rapport building comes in, um, taking the person's hand, reassuring them uh, about what's happening and that you're not leaving them alone. Um, but it's a, it, it's a, it, the person is in an extremely vulnerable state, and the drug will wear off uh, later on in the day. It's a, psilocybin is about a five, six-hour experience, and then you discuss the experience briefly, and they come back the next day and in subsequent sessions where they discuss the experience um, and how they, you know, uh, what lessons it might have for their life. So it's, it's really more akin to psychotherapy, medication-facilitated psychotherapy than it is like a traditional 
medication. It's really these therapeutic processes that are facilitated, increased openness, increased mental flexibility, um, increased insight into their own problems that the drug prompts. So uh, when you're talking about an anxiety reaction, you're talking about what uh, we grew up uh, knowing as a bad trip? Absolutely. In, in a therapeutic context, I've chosen to call it a challenging experience because often, not always, but often, um, people will, will highly value even those acutely frightening and disturbing experiences, but that they will come to see them as part of the process, whether it's facing their demons or subjectively facing their own death or you know facing the edges of their their own sanity, but to having gone through that and out to the other side, people often find deep meaning in having gone through that sort of uh, uh, dark night of the soul. Um, and, and so it, they're not necessarily bad. You know, occasionally out there when people are on their own, um, it's atypical. Sometimes people get hurt, you know, because these are highly intoxicating drugs and people can do something stupid basically when, when they're impaired. Um, so that level of risk is, 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 is absolutely mitigated because, they're in a safe environment. They're with people who are watching out for them, and keeping them safe. Uh, Mark Hayden, uh, here in Canada, uh, psilocybin, uh, the uh, active ingredient in magic mushrooms, so it's uh, legal, I believe, on a case-by-case uh, basis for people who are terminally ill. Do you expect that to uh, be widened out? Well, that is... There's currently two processes in Canada that are actually legalizing psychedelics. There's the special access program, which is opening the door, we believe, for hopefully MDMA. That's a parallel process to our phase three study. But there's also, as you mentioned, the psilocybin. Actually, it's, it's raw mushrooms. It's a mushroom experience that is being essentially legalized through what's called a Section 56 exemption, but specifically, as you say, on a case-by-case basis for people who are dying and experiencing end-of-life anxiety. So there are actually multiple paths by which psychedelics are now becoming available, and it's interesting because the, there's a huge number of for-profit companies that are leaping into this and wanting to provide this service right across Canada. So the landscape of psychedelic availability is changing actually quite dramatically today as we speak. Um, and Dr. Johnson, my understanding is, so we've got, uh, we've got the psilocybin that you work with a lot, and how does it ease end-of-life anxiety? People, the, the difference with psychedelics and, and other treatments for, for anxiety or, or the depressive symptoms is that people really come to grips with the core of their, of their psychological suffering, um, so, off, so we ran the largest study at Johns Hopkins, uh, 51 patients um, using psilocybin to treat um, seriously ill cancer patients who have depression um, and or anxiety. And it, people often have these realizations where they, 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 they come to, to, with the insight that they have been choosing to cause their own suffering. They have been choosing to isolate themselves to kind of let the, 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 the fact that they have this disease destroy them, um, not allow them to plan for the future, not allow them to play with their grandkids, to get out into the sunshine. Um, and so often these people medically can still do all of those things, but they created this, this, uh, this, 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 this um, suffering uh, because of their own reaction to it. And so often people will so clearly see that. And this is something that they could have told them, and they have told themselves before, and others have told them. And so it's not like a new cognitive realization. They could have told themselves this before, but now it's like they feel it in their heart. They feel it in their bones, and it is so crystal clear. And that is such a, uh, an earth-shattering and moving type of experience that it stays with people. It's like a, a revealed truth that they, they now fully understand. And that sticks with you because it's not a just about like, you know, like Xanax or benzodiazepine diazepine or a drink of alcohol, like just kind of calming your, 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 your brain receptors down and making you less anxious. It's these profound realizations. And we see similar things with people overcoming tobacco addiction and people overcoming depression outside of cancer. It's these deep psychological insights uh, that change their lives and their way of being going forward. Yeah, I was going to ask about uh, depression that has been untreatable. So it's, it's the same thing. You, you, 
take a psychedelic drug and it, it puts you in touch with some kind of profound uh, realization, uh, I guess, that, that, that shows you that you've been in your own way to a certain extent. Yeah, and we're still, it, yes, oftentimes, the people will ex- express these, uh, these experiences in very different ways, and there's a lot of variability in what people experience. One thing we have found uh, in terms of a correlation time and time again is that with psilocybin, people who have more of this so-called mystical experience, a core feature of which is feeling at one with everything, whether that's expressed as one with the universe, one with the rest of humanity, um, you know, even one with God if someone so is religiously inclined, people who have that type of experience um, show better results um, quitting smoking long-term, uh, having less depression and less anxiety long-term, and even in, with people without a disorder that's diagnosable, just healthy normals, healthy people. Uh, people around them say that they are um, better off uh, long-term when people have that type of experience. And they're also more, their personalities are more open long-term if they have that type of experience. So it's not just getting the, the, the drug. It's about a certain type of experience that one has uh, uh, you know, when they are um, on, the, on the drug. So there's, we have a far more to learn of, to, to figure out about how this is working psychologically and biologically. But it seems very likely that there is something profound about the experience. And so, again, it's more like psychotherapy. People change because of an experience. And, uh, Mark Hayden, I'm going to give you the last word. What can people here in Canada um, look forward to being able to access if they haven't had much success with the usual drugs? Well, we're going to roll out, I believe, MDMA-assisted psychotherapy first. Um, Psilocybin will be coming in second. And so the for-profit companies be rolling out clinics across the land, literally, where a variety of different psychedelics will be available to treat a whole variety of different treatments. Um, Everything from post-traumatic stress disorder to depression to anxiety to end-of-life anxiety. Um, Yeah, the, the future for psychedelic treatments is actually very bright. Okay. Thank you so much, Dr. Matthew Johnson and Mark Hayden. We really appreciate your time. Thank you. Okay. And that is all the time we have for today. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.